Jane talks about modern technology and a lot of her work, uh, uh, she wished it would never been invented. Machines that nag when, she, when you're going too fast or fridges that tell you to shut the door, um, etc. Jane, Jane's frustrated by that. We didn't ask Jane to talk about technology though tonight. Um, she's well known for her passion and support for teachers and where the community needs to improve rather than constantly having elements of political leadership the media and so-called experts making ill-informed comment and judgments about the profession and the quality of teachers. That's music to our ears, Jane. So I invite you to the podium now, please, to share some of your thoughts with us. I'm a little overawed. Here you all are, experts in education. I'm just a mouthy mum, frankly. Um, I suppose I'll tell you a little bit about where my passion for education came from and why I feel so angry about the way our policy makers, but not simply our policy makers, the way our community talks about teachers. Because uh, I wasn't acting on the drum. I, it infuriates me when I get asked, and the question that precipitated that little rant was, do you think we have a problem with the quality of our teachers? Can you think of any other profession where that question would be asked? The, the mere fact that that question is an acceptable one to ask is a gobsmacking insult. Uh, and teachers are such nice people. You, you, you like rules and you do tend to like obeying them. It's my one criticism of you. Um, and I'm not like that at all. So that's perhaps my use to you, is that I, get, when I get angry, I express it wherever I get a chance to, and it happened to be on that television program. That particular clip went viral, and it's now got upwards of 1.6 million views now, that's important for all sorts of reasons. It's very important for me in my career. I will totally acknowledge that. And it's also nice for the drama and for the ABC. It's also important from the point of view that that is the highest viewing of any clip from the drum, and it is about education and it is about teachers and teachers as human beings, which is another thing we don't hear enough about. It's also the fact, therefore and it's important because the 1.6 million views indicates that there's a great deal of support out there for teachers and a great deal of anger out there about the way teachers are routinely, casually insulted and have been for decades. One of the things I said in that clip that I feel very strongly about is that if politicians 30 years ago had gotten together and decided that they would systematically drive down the morale of the teaching profession, they couldn't have done a better job. And if you can think of something which would be more damaging to the results of students or to the ability of students to go, get ahead in in their schools than to drive down the morale of the people who teach them, well, I would really like to know what that thing is. Because I actually feel that 
forget about protecting teachers because they're nice people. It's actually about protecting students by protecting teachers. There's a wonderful saying that I've always really liked. It's one of those anon, you know, who knows who first said it or wrote it or whatever it was. And it is that the most important thing a man can do for his children is love their mother. And I often think that the most important thing a society can do for their children is love and support their teachers. It makes the same sort of no-brainer kind of sense. But we live in an era where no-brainer kind of sense has gotten lost. I think it was the plan <laughs> that drowned it in a heap of ordure is the word I think I'm looking for. Uh, and what's happened, it seems to me, and it's not just in education, it's not just in teaching. One of the things that I do now is I, I speak in all sorts of different sectors in the community and I'm hearing the same thing, that basically the control freaks and the measurement maniacs have taken over the world, the people for whom process is everything, the people for whom jargon replaces meaning. In fact, they're afraid of meaning. They don't want meaning because if there's any meaning in a statement, they can be pinned down to it. It's interesting that people... I just listened to the third debate this afternoon between Clinton and Trump. And what is interesting is Trump sounds like he's saying something. <laughs> but there's no meaning in it. It's a word salad. It's mostly, I'm great... He reminds me of Joe Bielke-Peterson. Anyone else see the resemblance? It's quite astonishing how alike they are. And when they transcribe what Trump actually says, it's a word salad. It's like he threw a whole lot of adjectives up in the air and they all landed in this order and that's how he said them. There's no meaning to what he says. Clinton, on the other hand, there's meaning to what she says. She's putting her... Colours to the mast. We know what she's going to do. She's been telling us patiently, calmly, through gritted teeth, for a long time. But there are an awful lot of charlatans like Trump in all sorts of powerful positions. I was saying uh, at the table that I read a wonderful book a while ago, I recommend it to you. It's called Smile or Die by Barbara Ehrenreich. And basically its thesis is that positivity is destroying America. And in fact, I think you could argue that it's destroying the world. She doesn't extrapolate that far, but hey, I am. Basically her thesis is, and she comes to this uh, idea about positivity, the relentless Never say anything negative. Never say anything that could be seen as you not being a team player. Exactly what you were illustrating with your uh, plan poem, the fact that the message has to be massaged until it's a positive message. Until it's not, this is shit, but this is a wonderful, uh, will promote growth. That's exactly what is happening throughout society now. And she argues that how she came to this realisation was she was diagnosed with breast cancer. 
a terrible thing to happen to anybody. And she found that she was not allowed to speak about her grief and fear about breast cancer because whenever she did, people said to her, oh, you mustn't talk like that. Those negative thoughts are what causes the cancer and will, will kill you. Now, what kind of stupidity... A, would say that to someone with breast cancer, what kind of an asshole are you? But B, actually believes that kind of infantile magical thinking. But this level of stupidity is now being preached all over the place. And she recovered from breast cancer, but she got really interested in this idea that you can never say a negative thing. And she said that basically what's now happened, she investigates all sorts of business and government and policy and schools and you know, the full gamut, and her thesis is very powerful, that what has happened is if anyone speaks up and says, this is shit, they're told, oh, no, that, that's, you're being very negative. You're not a team player. You have to turn it into something positive before you will be listened to. And that basically, there's a wonderful film, oh, what was it called? Terrible, and hmm? That was a wonderful film, but that's not the one I'm thinking of. No, it's the one which was about the guy who was trying to warn them that their company was about to fall off a cliff and he got fired and retrenched. And basically it's about how the GFC happened. And how the GFC happened was that nobody was able to tell the truth to the managing uh, directors, to the people who ran the companies, because they were told they were being negative, they were being a downer, they weren't a team player, they weren't doing the right thing. This cult of positivity actually sent our economic system plummeting off a cliff. So it's a wonderful and powerful thesis. We now have politicians who when talking about their own policies, can only wax lyrical. And the, the um, other side of that is when they talk about the opponents, they can only wax critical. And so what we get is this weird dance with one side saying this is the best plan anyone's ever invented, the other one saying this is the worst plan anyone's ever invented, my plan was much better, when actually both plans are shit. And the problem is that teachers are at the pointy end of all of this. Because what we're seeing, I think, in the world is not a fight anymore between the left and the right. I think those are old-fashioned definitions. Um, there's a philosopher called um, Stephen Law. Some of you may have read his book, The War for Children's Minds, which is wonderful. He's very engaged in teaching and education. But he defines it as a war between the authoritarians and the liberals. And by that he means those who want to tell you what to think, how to think, what to do, and those who want to teach you how to think and leave it up to you as to the conclusions you draw. Now, you would know as educators that one is good teaching and one is bad teaching. But the authoritarians are fighting very hard to hold on to their authority. And the Liberals are fighting just as hard to break that authority down. So we're in a really dangerous, risky, difficult place. It's probably directly as a result of the invention of the internet and social media, which, like the invention of the printing press, has thrown all the powerful up in the air. The invention of the printing press destroyed the 
total control the Catholic Church had over information in Western Europe. It destroyed it. What is happening now is the internet is taking that even further. And it's basically, sorry, white blokes in the audience, destroying the control that mostly white men had over information and powerful positions. That's what's happening. And of course, nobody gives up power without a fight. So that's one of the things we're facing up to. So when you are in schools, when I was at school in the 70s, I don't think anyone tried to control very much what my teachers did. Or if they did, remembering some of my teachers, they spectacularly failed. But some of those teachers who would go right off script and wander all over the place telling us wonderful stories about something that had absolutely nothing to do with the lesson taught me more than the ones who stuck rigidly to their curriculum. People are always asking me my opinion of curriculum. I'm not a teacher. I have no opinion of curriculum. Except this. Curriculum's what you practice on. You're learning how to learn and how to think. You're not learning to remember and regurgitate what was in the curriculum. If you ask me now what was on the curriculum when I was at school, between in school, I finished school in 1974, if you ask me what was on the curriculum then, I couldn't tell you a single thing. Not one thing. I think I can remember one quote from King Lear that I crammed on, up on for the HSC and it was, how sharper than a serpent's tooth it is to have a thankless child. I don't know why that stuck with me, but gee, I found out the truth of that later in life. Um, but that's about it. That's about it. But what I do remember, vividly remember, is the personalities and the relationships and the fun and the mischief and the bad things we did and some of the good things we did as well. But it's about the people. It's not about the stuff in the textbooks or the stuff on the we had blackboards on the blackboards it's not about any of that but i learnt enough to pass the exams go to university and become a writer and do what i needed to do but they taught me how to think not what to think but as i watched my own children go to school I was kind of astonished about the changes that had happened and how much more rigid and narrow it seemed that their learning was and also how everybody had an opinion what went on in the classroom. Parents used to talk to me about what was being taught and whether it was the right thing or the wrong thing. Now, I am a naturally slack parent. There is no doubt about that. <laughs> so I was, you know, not terribly interested in what was going on in the classroom I was just deeply relieved to hand my children over to someone else and let them be their responsibility for a while. I thought that was excellent. And as long as they came home and occasionally showed that they could read something and write something, I was pretty happy. Even adding up didn't bother me that much because I've never been able to do that myself. <laughs> but a lot of other parents were unbelievably engaged in what went on in the classroom in ways that I felt were... Well, a bit neurotic, really. And in fact, I think that is another thing that has been caused by the cult of positivity, by the, um, the general meaninglessness of a lot of what passes for um, 
public conversation these days is the ramping up of anxiety. And of course, if you have a highly anxious population and who feel out of control, one of the things they will do is control what they can. So of course, parents feel that they can control what happens in their child's school and what happens in the classroom in a way that I don't think my parents ever dreamt of. I have a very great friend who said to me once, you know, it's really changed. She said, when I was a kid, if, someone had, if, if a teacher had told my mother that I showed signs of having an imagination, my mother would have expected her to beat it out of me. <laughs> now, I don't recommend we go back to that extreme, but there wasn't that idea that every single child is gifted and talented. I... If I speak to roomfuls of teachers, I know I have a surefire opening line. I say to them, hello, I'm the last parent in Australia of two perfectly ordinary children. <laughs> and that always brings them to their knees weeping with gratitude and delight. <laughs> but the reason parents feel their children are gifted and talented or try to pretend to themselves that they are is because they are so anxious and the anxiety has been ramped up. They have been made to feel that if their children don't come top, then the likelihood is their children will never amount to anything, which is absolute rubbish. I never came top in anything in my life. In fact, I got invited back to my old high school, Forest High, to give a speech at speech night, which I was rather pleased about, actually. But what I was really pleased about was I was able to get up and say, look, to all the brothers and sisters of the nerdy swats who are winning stuff tonight, I just want to say to you, this is the first Forest High speech night I've ever been to. <laughs> um, they didn't ask me back. Ah... Uh, <laughs> But I think teachers have found themselves at the pointy end of all this anxiety because it has gathered around their children, that people have gathered it around their children and the fear for the future is very much concentrated on children and what might happen to them. And there's a feeling that you have to buy them an advantage, you have to buy them a network, you have to, you know, get them tutored so they're going to get these really high marks. Um, there's an And there's an almost weird lack of recognition of the way the world actually works. My youngest daughter got into um, OC class in fifth and sixth class. and She only went because it was at the school that she was already attending. It was a disaster. I wish I'd never sent her, but you can ask me about that later. But um, at the orientation day, I will never forget this, I sat at the back of the room, because we already went to the school, so I thought, well, I don't really need to know a lot about the school, and a lot of these parents came from other schools, so I'll sit at the back and just listen, you know, I'm show willing, pretend I'm not a slack parent. And um, there's all these questions, how many hours homework are they going to get, how, you know, what's going to happen, teachers dutifully answering them. And finally I put my hand up and I said, well, I just have one question. All the kids coming into this class are used to being in the top two or three of their normal class. But obviously only two or three of them can be the top two or three in this class. So how are you going to deal with that? And the teacher was great. She said, oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because that's actually the biggest... But what was interesting was not her answer. What was interesting was what happened to all the parents who were sitting in front of me. They all turned around and looked at me with this expression on their face. 
it had never crossed their minds that in fact all but two or three of the children were actually now not going to be top. It had never crossed their minds because they were so busy driving them into this achievement that they'd never thought about what it meant when they actually got there. And we seem to be in this world all the time where people are aiming for what I think are false gods. And then when they get there, it's not what they wanted, it's not giving them what they expected. We're obsessed with outcomes. You're the deans of bloody education. Outcomes are your business, aren't they? Aren't you all constantly being held to account for outcomes? Well, I'm going to say something which many people will think is heretically, heretical. You cannot control outcomes. It is impossible to control outcomes. The only thing you can control is inputs. That's all each of us can control. I discovered this in a brutal way. I will tell you how I discovered this. I was asked by the wonderful Marilyn Parker. You know Marilyn Parker? The, she's retired, wonderful um, uh, education journalist in the Daily Telegraph. She asked me to fill in for her. This was a long time ago. And write her column while she was on holidays. Just one column. She asked somebody else to do the second week. I had never written a column in a newspaper before. I killed myself to write that column. I researched it. I wrote it over and over again. I came up with all sorts of possible different topics. I wrote a number of different columns before I decided. I've never worked that hard on a column since, I can tell you. Um, But I worked on this one because it was my first And I was really proud of it and I sent it to the Daily Telegraph, I met my deadline and it went into the paper on the designated day. But I can guarantee you nobody read it. I can guarantee you nobody read it. And the reason I can guarantee you that is it appeared on the 12th of September 2001. No, poor me. No, who cares about my stupid column? But what I'm saying to you is... That's what happens that gets in the way of outcomes. You can put your heart and soul into doing something and something can come along out of left field that you had no bloody control over and knock it out of the water. You can be working with the brightest young teacher and bringing them up and nurturing them and then someone in their life gets terribly ill or something awful happens to them and they fall away. And that's something to do with you and what you did. And if you're being measured on how this young woman or young man, you know, performs, you're going to suffer for something that you had no control over. It is ridiculous. I admire watching Hillary Clinton in the debate. In the first debate, she said, Donald Trump said something to her, you know, you were off, I've been travelling around while you've been locked in a a room somewhere avoiding people. And she said, yes, I was preparing for this. I think Donald's saying I'm I'm prepared for the debate. And he's right, I did prepare for the debate and I'll tell you something else I prepared for and that's to be president and I think that's a good thing, which was an (laughs) excellent answer. But quite apart from that excellent answer, she was saying that she was controlling her inputs. She was doing the hard work to make sure that she had what she needed at her fingertips in the face of the biggest lunatic who's ever prowled the debate stage, let alone, you know, stood for president. And that is why she's been able 
to not get goaded into responding, to stay steady, sane and calm in the face of this onslaught of complete craziness because she controlled the inputs. There is no one who can control Donald Trump. This is perfectly clear. Even Donald Trump cannot control Donald Trump. This is perfectly clear. She didn't even try. She just controlled what she could do. This is how sane and mature human beings manage their lives. I remember once, in a, I, my, for my sins, I worked in advertising for 35 years as a, a creative writer. I remember a client saying to me once, it got worse and worse from the 80s on about people wanting to guarantee you to guarantee stuff. And he said to me, can you guarantee that this campaign you want me to buy from you and that you're trying to sell to me will reach my sales targets? And I said, no, but I can't guarantee that my children will grow up to be worthwhile citizens either. I'm just giving my best shot at both. He didn't buy the campaign. <laughs> Nevertheless, I was right. People can lie to you about the fact that they can control outcomes, but they can't. And the really pernicious side of this for teachers, particularly teachers who are struggling in uh, very disadvantaged schools servicing very disadvantaged communities, is that they are being asked to solve poverty. They are being asked in the classroom with a rigid curriculum and various uh, outcomes that their students are meant to meet to control and to solve poverty. This is an absurdity and it is for that reason that so many bright young people leave teaching within the first five years because they are being asked to do the impossible. And to be asked to do the impossible makes you go crazy. There's a term, it's, it's becoming quite popular in feminist circles, called gaslighting. Does everybody know what gaslighting is? It comes from an old movie starring Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer. Charles Boyer tries to make Ingrid Bergman think she's going crazy. And that's what gaslighting is. It's when people ask you to do things or change the reality. Deny, Donald Trump is a champion gaslighter. So he, you say, well, you said this. And he'll go, no, I never said that. Here's the video evidence of you saying that. No, I never said that. That's, you know, that's where it makes you feel like you're crazy. To ask young teachers to go into classrooms full of kids from incredibly chaotic backgrounds and reach set outcomes is to, make the, is to gaslight them. It is to make them feel like they are going crazy because they can't do it and no one can do it. And all it does is eat them up and make them feel like failures when they're not failures. When they're amongst the most admirable young people in our society because you have to be a pretty admirable young person to decide I'm going to go be a teacher. Yeah, because it's paid so well, the conditions are so brilliant, it's such high status. You know, if you go to a dinner party and you say you're a teacher, people go, wow. Wow, really? No, they don't. They say, oh, weren't you smart enough to do anything else? That's what they say. 
So you have to be a pretty special and motivated and compassionate young person to make a choice to go and be a teacher. And then we put them in situations where they cannot succeed or where to succeed they have to work hours I've never seen. My eldest daughter is a teacher. She's currently on maternity leave. Thank God, because otherwise she would have had a nervous breakdown. No, frankly, because she was so idealistic and dedicated and enthusiastic and wanted to get in there and change these kids' lives and, you know, make a huge difference, all of which is incredibly admirable. And had she been left alone to get on with it, she might have actually been able to do some of that. But because she had to constantly prove to other people that she was doing what she said she was doing in the classroom, the overwhelming amount of paperwork that she had to do basically burnt her out. I, I think at the bottom of this, and it's to do with anxiety, it's to do with the relentless cult of positivity, it's to, to do with the kind of meaninglessness of much of the conversation that goes on between those who are meant to be our leaders. It's to do with the um, gaslighting that constantly goes on in public life and is very rarely called out. I think that we place young teachers in a situation where they try desperately to please everybody, to fill in all the forms, but what has fundamentally broken down is trust. We no longer trust the teacher in their classroom to get on with the job. Instead, we all micromanage the teacher in the classroom. Parents micromanage them. Bostes micromanages them. Politicians micromanage them. Shock jocks on radio, who are so expert at everything, micromanage them. I get asked on Sunrise routinely to comment on something that a school has done. Now, Facebook... Twitter and social media micromanage them. It's hardly surprising that, you know, I think the statistic is about 50% of the teaching profession are gone within five years never to return. Sorry, that is a red flag saying there's something horribly wrong with the way we're treating young teachers and the sort of jobs that they're finding themselves in. But we're also finding older teachers giving up not actually giving up in terms of leaving, but giving up in terms of trying to do anything differently, remaining committed. We're seeing things like applications for principal's jobs plummeting in terms of the people who are actually willing to apply for those jobs. Well, who wouldn't? I have a sister who's a principal. Holy shit, that is a job and a half. You are responsible for absolutely everything. Recently... The uh, teachers, certainly in public schools, I presume in private schools as well, were told that they need to go and notify about obese students. Have you seen your average teacher? <laughs> of a certain age? It's not the sveltest profession. <laughs> not that I can talk, I'm not svelte neither. But can you imagine... A rather fat teacher going up to a pair of parents saying, your child is obese and I have to notify docs to name and shame your child and your family because your child is obese. 
And the parents, quite rightly, are going to turn around and say to the, pet, to the teacher, I'm sorry, you're calling my kid fat? But this is the level of ridiculousness that we're getting to in terms of policymakers, politicians, bureaucrats passing the buck for social issues down the line until they get to the school and to the teacher and to the principal and basically saying to them, your job, you fix it. That is outrageous. It's outrageous and we need to be saying so. I think, and I'm, what have I got to back this up? I'm a bloody nobody out of advertising agencies. I think, however, that the best schools and the wisest schools are those that become oceans of sanity in a crazy world. And that that's what schools should aim to do. I've heard examples of it. There was a wonderful uh, principal of Parks Primary School. And Parks Primary School had a very high level of um, disadvantaged kids in it. A lot of kids coming from very chaotic backgrounds. And she was a very tall woman. Ruth Brain, I think her name was. Anyway, very tall woman. She told me this lovely story about how every single kid who came into her school, who enrolled in her school, she would get down to their level and she would say to them, look, I can't do anything about what goes on outside of school. I can't control things that go out of school, but anything that happens in here, I will make you a promise. You will understand why it happens. And if you don't, if something happens here, good, bad or indifferent, and you don't understand why, you can come to me and you can say, Mrs Brain, I don't understand why that happened. And I will find out why it happened or explain why it happened. You know, you'll get in trouble if you do the wrong thing, but I'll be able to tell you why. Now that's creating sanity. That's actually throwing a lifeline out to a small child and saying, the world is not all crazy. You can have reason and logic and warmth and nurturing and, yes, discipline, and you can understand why things happen, which is the essence of sanity, to understand why things happen. But we're... Our whole society is losing connection with that idea of what sanity is, which is you need to understand what's going on. I think there are a whole lot of people in jobs right now who have no idea why they're doing what they're doing. They're getting orders to do things. I think a lot of the accountability that teachers have to do, the only reason they think they're doing it is because it's going to solve somebody else's problem further up the line in terms of, what were you talking about, all the constant reviews that nobody ever looked at? That's crazy. That's insane-making because that's people doing work that comes out of their energy, their time, their heart, and that no-one looks at, no-one cares about. It's so that some politician can get up in the House and say, we're doing a review on that. It's... An insane world. You teach the last bastion of sanity left. For God's sake, don't give up on them. Don't give up on sanity. Don't give up on reason. And don't obey the fucking rules. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you very much, Jane. Um, that was a bit of a reality check, wasn't it? Hey? Um, the bit that I related to most was being crazy. You've got to be crazy to go into this job. But, Jane, I think um, we want to thank you for being an advocate for teachers. We, we, we struggle. We, 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 th we think highly of teachers. We plan programs for teachers, but we absolutely struggle with the craziness of regulation. Mm. We are the most, one of the most regulated professions in the world and we, we have three or four regulators to work with and if that's not craziness, I don't know what is. So uh, on behalf of the group tonight, thank you for raising our consciousness, I think, about our important role in carrying on and following you in this advocacy of challenging government, of challenging the regulators, of challenging the broader society and placing our teachers back in the position that you're suggesting, right up there, out front, le leading for the betterment of society. So join me, please, again in thanking Jane. Thank you. Oh, as, as, as a sign of appreciation of Jane's great work out there in the field, we're, we're offering her a certificate of honorary membership of this association. Now, she may reject it, <laughs> but I'm hoping not. Is it free? It is free, just okay. like Nan's book. Okay, and I'll just, I'll just read to you. Um, we've got a little plaque for you as well. And uh, the certificate and gift is for your support and advocacy as a critical friend of the Australian teaching profession. So thank you again, Jane. Well, thank you.